Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Hello, and welcome to Detailed. My name is Sharice Lakeside, Senior Spec Writer for RDH Building Science and your host for this podcast. I am extra excited about today's guest. Not only is she a colleague, she is also a friend, a kindred spirit in our like-minded opinions of how to best work in this industry, and smart as hell. Today, I welcome Sarah Gray, professional engineer, Principal and Building Science Specialist at RDH Building Science, Inc. in our Toronto, Canada office. Sarah is a self-proclaimed building science nerd, which, yeah, okay, I'm going to give her that. (laughs) Having worked on the design of new buildings and repairs to existing buildings over 20 years, she looks forward to retrofitting old buildings to meet net zero carbon targets. Today, we're going to be talking about social housing apartment towers in Toronto, Ontario. These buildings are older high-rise social housing apartment towers that haven't had a lot of love, meaning repairs, in 20 years or more. They are deteriorated, tired, dark, worn out, leaky, drafty, and some are downright ugly. After all that, they're probably haunted as well. The Canadian government sees the need to retrofit these towers to improve building durability and quality of life for the residents. However, and I can totally relate to this, however, typical government processes seek lowest bids from contractors who may not have experience working with existing buildings or experience working in buildings where the residents stay in place. In Sarah's words, chaos often ensues. 
So tell me a little bit about these buildings. Like how tall are they? How bad a shape are they in? What is what is the goals of retrofitting these? So Toronto has many thousands of mid-rise and high-rise apartment buildings. So mid-rise is usually four stories and above. And when we're talking about high-rise, you know, I typically say six to 10 stories and above. Some of the buildings that we work with are, you know, the four to six range. Some are 28 stories or so. I think in the mid-60s, when these buildings were first being built, they kind of topped out at 20-ish, maybe maybe 30, right? And now, you know, we're, we're building new buildings that are 70 stories. So, you know, these are sort of like the shorter but taller buildings of their time. Again, construction from, say, the 1960s. And in Toronto, you know, the boom kind of ended, let's say, the the early 1980s. So we got this, like, time frame of, of buildings that were built within a span of 20 years. And the, the oldest of them are now 50 plus years old, right? Pushing 60 years old from the 1960s. So they've just seen a lot. They've done a lot. We've asked them to do a lot of, you know, heavy lifting in terms of housing our people. Like, this is where people lived. I lived in a high rise uh, for many years and, you know, lots of my friends still do. So these are places to live. They're in urban areas, close to transit usually. You know, some have lovely landscaped facilities. Some have swimming pools and gyms and community centers. So they're just places to live. Um, Some of them are market rental, so privately held ownership firms or ownership groups own these, rent them, you know, varying rental prices, but, you know, they're on the market. And a a fair chunk of them are affordable housing or social housing funded all or in part by any level of government, federal, provincial, city, right? So there's funds from all three forms of government that, that help support these buildings. Public housing projects can often go neglected due to complexities that create friction in building management and maintenance. Things like bureaucracy, inflexibility, limited labor pool, financial restrictions and hardships, and a lack of responsibility and accountability. This can ultimately leave buildings in disrepair and poor condition for extended periods of time. Frustrations with these conditions can boil over, spurring residents and social housing advocates to put pressure on officials, like these residents, who confronted the mayor while he was visiting their housing community in we Toronto. I've called your office many times. I've sent numerous complaints. This building is actually, I've felt this building in, in the news before because of the falling bricks, because of the, the no hot water. I've been asked management and TCHC for the last seven years to fill those bottles on the way in. And it never happened. Why, Mr. Mayor? Why? Okay. So we can talk about the structure, but once the structure is up, what about the people living in the building and how they're being treated? The building that he was touring was previously in the news after a failure in the brick facade that led to thousands of bricks detaching from the structure and raining down from several stories above. I take your point uh, with respect to some of the time it takes uh, to get some of these things done. I take your point. Um, with respect to the quality of the work sometimes not being what it should be. And, um, you know, I can only tell you that, first of all, we have to actually get some of these repairs done and have the money to do them. And then I think it's our job, once we have that money, which I'm here today asking for from the other governments, to make sure there is a quality uh, to those jobs and to the people who do A lot of these buildings are concrete-framed superstructures or structural frames. Many have brick cladding over concrete block backup. Pretty robust, but 
over time, you know, deterioration, spalling, the like kind of happens. Not a lot of insulation, maybe an inch or two inches of, of insulation on the interior side of the block wall, and then plaster directly applied to that insulation. So, you know, it was a product of its time and it needs durability improvements. It needs energy retrofits. They need more insulation. And, you know, it's just the aesthetic as well. Like they look a little sad and tired on the outside um, and they look real sad and tired on the inside. And that's not because of neglect necessarily. It's just, you know, style and age and different ideas about what interiors should look like at a point in time, right? Some of these towers are actually mid-century modern type icons, frankly, and there's a lot of appreciation for those types of buildings now. So I'm not really talking about those kind of cooler buildings. We're just talking about the standard stock as part of this retrofit work. So is it this always, this kind of band-aid approach, always the best best path and why don't they rebuild? But is that strictly a money situation? The buildings are eventually not going to hold up to repairs anymore, right? Well, I I wouldn't sell them short, Cherise. They're pretty robust, honestly. Like, you can't knock the concrete frame brick over block building. Like, over time, you know, they fared better than some of our, our newer construction. And I'm not going to name names or name building systems, but, you know, I got a little soft spot in my heart for, you know, 1970s brick over block towers in Toronto. You know, any masonry building does require some level of repair over time. Now, that service life interval can be, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or 50 years. You know, eventually some mortar erodes and deteriorates. No matter how good all the details are, a few bricks or more here and there will spall or crack and need to be replaced. That's typical masonry. Like, we got masonry buildings that are 400, 500 years old, not here, but in Europe, that are holding up forever. So it's just about keeping up with the maintenance. In some ways, you know, you can do dribs and drabs of maintenance on the exterior of a building, particularly masonry, and you're good to go for a long time. But there are other systems of these buildings that need a major intervention. You know, you could keep repairing uh, single pane aluminum frame windows forever, but really the technology is obsolete. You know, we've we have moved on from single pane non-thermally broken aluminum windows. We're using double or triple pane aluminum frame windows or even double or triple pane fiberglass windows. You could stick with the aluminum and single pane. Um, you're going to have a comfort issue and energy issues, um, but we've just decided we're moving on to new technologies. So it's not always a durability issue, but it can also be a technical obsolescence like the windows. Boiler systems inside need to be replaced. Eventually, you know, the hot water pipes um, have pinholes. You need to replace the pipe. So there's, there are levels of major interventions that do need to happen. However, I like to say that you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, the bones are still good, right? We just need to maintain, repair, replace some of the guts that from time to time wear out, need to be renewed, you know, and, and we'll, we'll flip the conversation a little bit to carbon because, you know, that's what we're, we're talking about with these buildings is that we want to sort of embrace and reuse the embodied carbon in the structural frame and or some or all of the cladding. Do not throw out all that energy and all those materials that are in our existing buildings. You just don't need to throw all of it out. 
However, we also realize that the operational carbon emissions, so the greenhouse gas related to particularly natural gas and dirtier grid electricity, is just not good. We need to reduce or eliminate those operational carbon emissions. So we need to have a better performing building envelope with more insulation so that we can use less energy or electricity to heat and cool the buildings. So less carbon emissions in that regard. So, you know, there's this balance between keeping what's good in the building and renewing, replacing what's either technically obsolete or is really polluting our environment now, right? So that's the crux of the matter with these older towers. You got to take the good with the bad. Absolutely. And and of course, I've got another side question in my brain, just because as I've told you in previous conversations, I don't do cold. I don't like cold. <laughs> and in, in my opinion, you guys are up there in the tundra. Great white north. It, I mean, it's, yeah, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just like freezing all the time. And you're telling me these are concrete buildings and and they're old concrete buildings. How the hell do you keep them warm? Yeah, well, particularly with the way that these were insulated or, or barely insulated um, in the, you know, the earlier part of this area, the 60s and the 70s, there was really no energy performance or very little energy performance guidelines in the code. Like I said, we do find an inch or two inches of foam insulation applied to the interior side of the backup walls, thermal bridging everywhere. Thermal bridging is the movement of heat across an object that is more conductive than the materials around it. That conductive material creates a path of least resistance for heat. Thermal bridging can be a major source of energy loss in buildings, leading to higher energy costs, and in this case, great discomfort in substandard living conditions. They're not comfortable buildings to live in. And it's not so much that they're cold. Frankly, in a lot of cases, they're stinking hot because you have to crank the boiler up so high to cool the the apartments that are at the bottom of the building. Meanwhile, because hot air rises, all that heat is going to the top. So the folks on the first and second floor might be, you know, pretty comfortable, but the folks at the top are sweating because it's just not an efficient way to, to heat and manage our buildings. So again, that's the other opportunity. Let's heat these buildings in the right way and also have insulation and kind of balance everything out, right? We've we've just learned so much in, in building science and mechanical design over the last 50 years. It's like, now we can do it right this time. Absolutely. Well, you don't even hear people saying boiler all that often anymore. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking boilers. I'm, I'm trying to think, when's the last time I worked on a project with a boiler? And it was a school, a public school. Yep. Um, so I want to tap into that incredible building science nerdiness a little bit. Give me a few examples of very specific technical challenges you have in design with these buildings and how you have solved some of them. The first challenge is just getting to know the building. A lot of these buildings do not have original architectural drawings. You know, the building owner has lost them. The city doesn't have them or, you know, something along the way, right? The dog ate the homework. (laughs) Um, and even if we are lucky enough to have the original drawings, architectural, structural, and or mechanical, or some common weird combination of those, they're not as built necessarily. So, you know, they're beautiful architectural drawings. It's signed and stamped by the architect, but who knows how the building was built? So the first challenge is getting to know the building. 
like I said, you know, my passion is going to the building and crawling around. You have to, you cannot retrofit an existing building without having spent a lot of time on site, getting to know the construction. Is there insulation on the interior, the exterior side of the the walls? What's the roof like? Is there an air barrier? Is it a vapor barrier? How many times has the roof been replaced? How much insulation is there? What is the condition of the boilers? You know, some a lot of firms or a lot of building managers have replaced their boilers with newer boilers. So what's the age of those boilers? What's their efficiency? Um, is it something to keep and recommission? Is it something that needs to go because it's at the end of its life? You have to get on site and look at a lot of stuff. So that's the challenge and the opportunity, right? That's where my nerddom starts is, you know, day one on site. What do we got? You know, you're just looking around, you're reading the building, you're taking lots of notes, you're taking photos, you're just seeing where the water stains are, seeing where the deterioration is. And, you know, if you're lucky enough, you'll, you'll talk to the building manager, the site superintendent, talk to some residents. Um, if you're given permission, you say, you know, what are the problems? What's your complaint here? What's on your wish list? Listening to the folks that are in the building is so key. You can't just be this designer, this engineer, this building science nerd that's kind of over here on the side. You got to get in into the building. What would you say the biggest challenge is um, when you're designing in these buildings? Is it the insulation? Is it the roofing? Is it? Yeah, it's, it, it is really getting to the crux of the building physics or the building science. So, uh, you know, in general, we know that we we're going to add insulation on, on the walls and or the roof, okay? It's about knowing how much, uh, what's appropriate, inside, outside, those sorts of design decisions. The, the next thing very much related to that and almost a bigger building science problem than insulation is air tightness. Because if we have lots of insulation on a building, but it's blowing out air, well, who cares about the insulation? So we really need to look at the seals, you know, around windows and doors, around penetrations. Is there a continuous air barrier? I just listened to a John Straub, one of our senior folks and a, a mentor in the building science industry, is just preaching about air barriers all the time, right? Keep the water out, keep the air out, keep the air in. So we need to be mindful of the air barrier as well. So that takes some real careful understanding of what's there now. Is there an intended air barrier or not? And if not, where is the right place to put the air barrier? And is the air barrier also serving as the vapor barrier and the moisture control air? I mean, I could just go down a rabbit hole with all of that. So it's again, it's about understanding the building and then understanding the the basic building science principles that we're going to apply to this building to retrofit it in terms of reducing air leakage, managing moisture, adding insulation, all of it. So, you know, we in our firm have a building enclosure first approach to these retrofits. So if we can get the building envelope airtight, well insulated, shedding water, allowing drying, uh, vapor diffusion drying where needed, you know, we got a big chunk of the work done. Right. So now we can right size our mechanical systems. We can provide fresh air supply. We can exhaust stale, dirty, smelly air. So we, you know, you work together from a, an architecture and building science approach with the interior mechanical systems to provide this holistic system. So that's another challenge. It's not just looking at one thing in isolation in a silo. It's 
you know, looking at the bigger picture with the other project design team disciplines, right? You got to talk to each other on your own team, let alone other people on the building. Okay. So let's, let's talk about construction for a minute. Because I love hearing the stories, the, the surprises, like we're working on this project, everything was going great, and a ghost jumped out of the wall or whatever. Tell me about a couple of those you've run into in your career and what you had to do to remedy whatever the surprise was. With the older brick buildings, it, it is really important to understand how that wall is put together. So you can have a multi-wythe brick wall, so an outer layer brick, an inner layer brick, a, you know, middle wythe, that sort of thing. Those all have to be tied together to form sort of a composite so that the brick doesn't fall off the wall and it's all sort of stable in very simple terms, right? So older buildings have what we call brick headers, where a brick is kind of turned 90 degrees and kind of stuck in so it connects with the backup wall. Newer systems have metal ties to connect the brick face to the backup wall. And the big surprise is if you open up um, a sample brick wall area and you find either no ties or they're completely corroded and holding on by a thread, or you have old brick headers that have, have shifted because the building has shifted and they're snapped. So you can find these situations where you may be looking at a brick wall that's close to just peeling off the face of the building. So that's a real showstopper. Like you have to solve that problem because you can't put any other new cladding over that brick face until you fix that and understand that. So that's a that's a challenge with masonry clad older apartment towers for sure. In the 80s, we started putting brick veneer cladding over steel studs with paper face gypsum board sheathing. Recipe for a disaster. Again, a whole nother podcast topic but the gypsum sheathing would invariably get wet, which then allowed the steel studs to get wet, which meant that they corroded. So you may have a wall that's literally falling apart. Showstopper, once again. So you got to figure out how you're going to support that structure, replace studs, add new studs, sister in studs, add more brick ties, the whole nine yards. It's not just an insulation project anymore. It's like a structural salvation project at that point in time. That cannot be an easy challenge. No. No, there's a lot of engine, a lot of engineering that goes into those solutions. Absolutely. So, can you think of another one that you had to do something really interesting to? Yeah, there's always something, particularly with window replacement projects um, in older towers. You know, they just, you know, no offense to anyone at that point in time in the old old days or in in older timeframes, but, you know, they just kind of put the windows in and screwed it into something and just kind of prayed that it the windows stayed in place. So, you know, you go to take out the existing window to put in a new window and you're looking at the rough opening and you're like, there's nothing here. Like I got to add something to, so that I can adequately secure and anchor my new window to the building um, and not just kind of have it being held in by friction and magic. So that's another big head scratcher. Um, so we've got to, you know, grout open concrete block cells. We got to put in, you know, epoxy set anchors, um, plywood bucks that are secured back to some structure somehow. And then, you know, on top of that, once you figure out the structural securement, you got to provide those air barrier flashings, all of the building science layers um, once you get the structure set. So that's another challenge. So, so again, it's, you know, it's not really shown on the architectural drawings. I mean, sometimes those older drawings can be very detailed, but, you know, all, all well intended on the drawings perhaps, but 
the window trades just installed it to get the job done. Um, and now we have to, you know, think a bit more carefully about the window securement. We got higher wind loads now, particularly on these taller buildings, you know, wind loads that were not the design loads at the time of construction. So um, even if we did have decent securement of the windows and, and cladding from the beginning, you know, the wind loads have changed. So now we got to design for a bit more robustness. These projects, um, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of them are public work projects. Uh, and I did public work for a lot of years. So I understand some of the challenges of getting what you need within, within the amount of money that you have on a building when you're doing public work. Can you tell me a little bit about the challenges of bidding a project like this? So there's a couple of challenges. Um, one is typically the specifications for public projects often need to be only performance-based. So we cannot prescribe or list materials or manufacturers. So that could be a good thing because you know, you're just describing specific performance that you need out of the material or the assembly. But, you know, sometimes it's just easier to say, I want product X from the Acme Widget Company, like, and everybody knows what that is. So that's a challenge. So under, you know, you have to understand that first going in before you start writing your specs or doing your drawings, you know, can we be prescriptive or is it only a performance-based project? And then certainly, you know, it's this low bid, you know, let's just say it, right? So, you know, typically the low bid consultant, the low bid architect, the low bid contractor, the low bid supplier wins. And that is tricky um, and unfortunate. So you either have companies that perhaps are, you know, not qualified, don't have enough experience, don't have the, the capacity, the workforce to do the work that are going to get the project because they're low bid, or you get these wonderfully qualified companies and trades and manufacturers that you know, manipulate the numbers or, you know, throw in a number hoping that they're going to get change orders and extras afterwards. So it's just not a great situation in many cases. And I think that some public institutions are seeing that light after many, many years and are doing more qualifications-based evaluations that are more heavily weighted than just the fee. So that's moving in the right direction, I'd see. So it's a challenge. And and particularly on, on some of these social type projects where it's an affordable housing, social housing, tower retrofits, there's just a lot of great brain power that could do such marvelous work. But you know, you got to weave your way through this procurement system that's a little tricky and not desirable. So hopefully we can start moving away from that. What do you wish some of the people, other disciplines we have to work with understood better whether it's technical things or what what kind of things w- would you like better communication and coordination on in the work that you have to do to make what you do more efficient? Well, I would advise any prime consultant, whether it be, you know, an engineering consulting firm like RDH or an architecture firm to have existing buildings experience to work on existing buildings. And and that echoes, you know, the MEP folks or even the landscape folks, et cetera. You know, working on existing buildings is a different beast than than designing and building a, a new building from scratch. You know, 
white sheet of blank paper in front of you, no lines, you can do whatever on a new construction project. And that takes a, a lot of sophistication and a lot of know-how, and I'm not diminishing that by any means, but working on existing buildings takes a different level of experience and know-how. It's not better or less, it's just A and B, you know, they are different. And, you know, if you practice on new buildings, that can inform your your restoration practice and and vice versa. But let's, you know, make sure that the folks that are working on existing building retrofits have some experience or appreciation at least <laughs> of, of working in existing buildings and knowing that, you know, these buildings will not be level and plumb. They have, you know, settled over time, possibly some shifting. There's structural deflections and, you know, deformities that happen and all disciplines need to, to be aware of that. And I, again, I think it's also the communication um, amongst all of the design team consultants. It's not just saying, well, you know, we're doing it this way because I've, I've designed 30 mechanical systems or, you know, 2,500 buildings with this mechanical system. So we're going to plop it into this existing building. That doesn't always really work. You've got existing pipe runs. You've got a mechanical room that is a, of a certain size that you have to fit the equipment in you know, lots of things to think about. So getting a team together that can understand, appreciate, and have the experience in approaching existing buildings and deep retrofits with a different mindset. So when you're working on, because I'm, I'm really curious about this, you're working on this old building, a whole different set of rules when that place was built, a whole different different way of even making products or products that were being used. How do you approach product selection? when you're you're hitting one of these buildings obviously for most of this stuff you can't go get the original thing to match what's there and sometimes you don't want to so yeah exactly <laughs> or or my favorite on the original drawings you have the you know galbestos panels and you're like we're not touching that and that's getting <laughs> taken out because no yeah. more asbestos right so i do believe that a lot of products and approaches are very regional I've worked in a couple of regions and I advise, um, you know, some of our other offices in far flung locales on some things. And I, you know, I have to ask them, I said, well, I think we want a two ply membrane, but I don't know what you guys do in this office. You know, is it a standard two ply SBS modified bitumen membrane? Are you using, uh, you know, hot applied built up roofing? Are you using EPDM? Like, you know, you just have to be really cognizant of what's in the region. You don't want to just spec something because that's the way they've done it for 30 years, but sometimes there's some merit to what's been done for 30 years because you'll know that there'll be trades available who know how to work with those products or systems. So there's a balance between, you know, knowing and using what's regionally accepted, for lack of a better word, and then also understanding the new technology. You know, yeah, we've been doing this for 30 years, but here's this new technology and there's been a lot of testing and it's been proven. So we need to start shifting to this for X, Y, Z technical reason, right? So there's this, you know, kind of interesting balance you have to dance around sometimes, right? And um, I won't name trades by name, but Sometimes the <laughs> trades that are at the top of the building sometimes don't want to change their specs. So, yeah, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I can just tell that. We'll just move on to the next question. If you were queen of the world and could do 
anything, like nobody's getting in your way, do anything you wanted to do in our industry, what would you change about the, the current state of the union, so to speak, in AEC that would change the way we work and, and help us get better results? Well, we touched on it earlier. I think the, the key thing is, and I think this is changing and hopefully will continue to change, is really be mindful of relationship building, team building, and communication. And I'm not saying that folks have done it wrong for a long time. I think that I've gotten better <laughs> over my 20 years um, as well. And, you know, either, you know, using technology, FaceTiming people from the site to the office or vice versa, just talking to people. Don't work in isolation, particularly when you're on these multidisciplinary retrofit projects where, you know, several consultants and disciplines are working together to make these buildings better. You have to talk to each other. So there's have to be a rapport and a trust and a honesty about us. Um, and it's, you know, obviously all companies have some proprietary information, so we don't need to give away all the trade secrets, but it's just about teaching and learning and talking about things, exploring, asking the questions why, and then figuring out the answers together. So I think that's really key. And, you know, from there, that doesn't solve technical problems, but it gets people talking about how to solve the technical problems. And I think the other thing is communication again, but, you know, not just you know, warm fuzzies, teamwork stuff, but clearly communicating client goals, objectives, timelines, deadlines, responsibilities, you know, sort of project management 101, because, uh, you know, many projects go sideways for those reasons, because we weren't on the same page with client objectives. We, we didn't know the timelines. We didn't know who was doing what, when, and where. And particularly as our project team's have more disciplines and get larger, that's fundamentally key as long as we're all on the same page. Right. You know, you, you don't know your project deadline. How are you supposed to manage your time? Exactly. You know, that's a simple one, but I can't tell you how many times I've seen that my entire, and that's what drives me nuts, is we're talking about the same things we were talking about 30 years ago. Right. Or you'll you'll have that client ask you, okay, well, I need your design brief by tomorrow. And you're like, by tomorrow? What are you talking about? We were on site yesterday. You know, I cannot. But then you can say, okay, what do you really need by tomorrow? You know, do you need um, the R value of the wall? Or do you, do you need a 30-page report about the condition of the wall? You know, it's about, okay, what do you need right now? <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, because well, that helps also helps you plan your time in your project management. Right. Sarah, thank you so much for agreeing to be here. My begging, Sarah, you have to be on my new podcast. <laughs> I, I appreciate it as always. It's, it's a joy. I could think of a hundred topics we could do a hundred podcasts on. Well, and, and funny little note, Sarah did a podcast quite a ways back. What was that called? Seven minutes of building science. It is still on sound. Yep, still on SoundCloud. If Dan is listening, shout out to Dan. He was my first podcast coach, my first podcast host. Those were super fun. So I'm glad to be on this podcast. Seven minutes of BS. Was it? Isn't that what it was called? It was seven minutes <laughs> building of BS. science BS. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you again for being with us today, and. I'll see you tomorrow at work. Exactly. See you, Cerise. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.